episode of Labor that we recorded last summer in Brooklyn. It was, uh, I believe, the weekend of, I could be wrong on this, but it might have been July 15th. Uh, we were doing several shows and uh, podcasts in Brooklyn, and it was hot as hell. It was end of days hot. Um, that's what I remember about this mostly, although, again, maybe I have a long weekend regardless uh, this is uh, this is a great conversation with Johnny Temple of Akashic Books, um, and I'll let Johnny tell you more about Akashic and, and at least the specifics. I guess I will tell you that it's an independent publishing house. Johnny used to be, or I guess still is, in a band called Girls Against Boys. We have some mutual DC friends, and uh, Akashic is just an incredibly cool publishing house, and does just really interesting things for all the right reasons so it's pretty inspirational stuff and uh, there's some great moments of overlap in this one where um, you can really hear a lot of the things that we're interested in coming out of Johnny's mouth so um, here you go we're going to start it out here's Johnny Temple um, at Akashic Books in Brooklyn uh, July 2013 Reverse gentrification of the literary world. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we're are we working? We are. Okay. I try to sneak up on people. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
Should I ask everyone else to be quiet, or is that all right? Not okay. Not, 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 we've had far more background noise. Than okay. Um, yeah. Uh, reverse gentrification of the literary world is our sort of tongue-in-cheek motto. Um, we try not to take ourselves too seriously, um, and it, it, this was. Uh, coined for us by an old punk rock friend of mine named Chris Thompson, who actually works in advertising yeah. now. Well, Chris Thompson. Book like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah Chris. yeah, Chris is a great guy. And um, when he when he sort of proposed that to a potential sort of tagline, uh, we we loved it immediately um, because it really captures some of the spirit of the company, which is um, that noise might be. That's probably a problem. Max, sorry. Hey, Katie. Yeah. Can we then we're, we're doing some taping now on that tape gun? It's fun for people to talk, but that tape gun is very loud. Okay, I'll find the other one. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, we won't be doing this for too long. Okay, I'll sorry. Um, sorry. Um, reverse gentrification of the literary world. You know, it 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 is. I feel like the the, the literary establishment, based mostly in Manhattan, is is a very sort of actually an elitist. Um, industry, for the most part, um, speaking broadly, it's very liberal. You know, it's a very liberal industry, but it's um, it, it, it's to me smacks of that sort of liberal eat elitism that the people on Fox News always talk about. <laughs> um, so they're right. <laughs> I do. I actually do. I actually do think that there is some truth in in in, in what they talk about. I mean, it's like it's why you know John Kerry had a hard time. <laughs> being elected president because he looks so patrician and I mean I supported John Kerry and I like John Kerry but um, but there's a certain sort of liberal elitism that yeah I think it's often bullshit when Fox News is talking about it but I think that there is actually some kernels of truth in this idea um, and this sort of political this sort of rigid political correctness um, and and um, so we don't think that people, and, and I, th I feel like a lot of book publishers, their audience and their target audience is the sort of very, very well-educated people. And, and I don't necessarily think that books should only be consumed by people that are highly educated. I think a lot of the books that we publish, I, I think it's fine literature. I think it's high-quality literature. But I would like to think that you don't need a college degree to appreciate a lot of the books that we publish. I also think that the, that the book publishing the mainstream industry ignores huge swaths of the population. Um, and I think that books need to be sort of demystified and, and popularized um, and not be such a sort of highbrow art form. Everyone, a lot of people in the business complain that no one is reading anymore and oh, we're having such a hard time with books and books are not as relevant. And I think if people spent less time complaining and more time looking how to creatively reach new audiences, huge, vast sectors of the American population, just looking at America, that are you know just basically wholesale ignored by by the book business, that would be that would be energy better spent on trying to reach those new audiences rather than just moaning how. No one reads anymore. Print is dead. Yeah. What, what is it you do to try to reach those new audiences? Is it just inherent in the books that you put out, or, or do you do outreach sort of activities? 
it's, I think it has more to do with packaging and outreach and attitude than it does with necessarily with the specific books. But it's, it's a combination of various things. I mean, just to give a few examples of things that we do, one thing that I do personally is I'm one of the organizers of the Brooklyn Book Festival, um, which is New York's b biggest and best public book fair. And um, it, you know, it, tens of thousands of people come. And, and in the programming of it, we have 250 authors involved in programs on more than a dozen different stages. This year, the main festival is on Sunday, uh, September 22nd, and um, that festival is also about reaching people, um, lots of people. There's something we'd like to think at the festival. There's something for everybody. It's not. It's not a book festival just for people who like to read Juno Diaz. And um, I, although I personally love Juno Diaz, he's one of my very favorite authors. But. Um, not just for people that are, you know, read highfalutin literary authors, but there's books for little children, books for teenagers, musicians who have books. So that's one example. Is I, I'm, I believe passionately in public engagement, and you see that in how we publish our books at Akashic. We do. We send our authors out far and wide to to interact with people face to face. I think that's important. But another example of what we do is we have a new imprint um, called Infamous Books, which is run by the rapper Prodigy from the rap group Mob Deep. And um, this is uh, this is an this is a this, we're starting off with four novellas, short books that are sort of cr crime fiction in orientation. I think these books can appeal to readers of mysteries, crime fiction, but also kids who book publishers are not trying to sell books to that might be, you know, the fact that the the rapper is curating the books and helping to to, um, to uh, publish the books and promote the books might draw people in to engage with these books, which are serious books. Um, in, in, a, in a, you know, we might be reaching a new audience, new audiences through this imprint, new audiences to us at Akashic, but also audiences that very few literary publishing houses are are trying to reach. So there's other examples as 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 well, um, uh, and also just in the packaging of our books. You know, a lot of our designers come out of the music world, um, in the punk rock world. So there's a I think there's a vitality and an energy to some of our book designs that might help <clears throat> to reach an audience that uh, is not necessarily, you know, who don't necessarily read the New York Review of Books or the New York Times right. Book Review. Right. Well, how did you make that transition initially? I mean, I think, the, you know, we were around in a previous band in the 90s and obviously, you know, swimming in some of the same waters. And then I remember at some point years ago, Johnny Temple started this publishing company in Brooklyn. Wow, that's that's a and I didn't know you, but I mean that's a transition, obviously, between Girls Against Boys to that. How did that happen? How did you get involved? Um, I, I had always wanted to start a record label. That was always my dream. I never had any ambition to start a book publishing You'd be company. You're so rich right now. You feel that? I'm not frustrated at all. <laughs> yeah. I did start a record label briefly, Akashic Records. I started it with two fellow DC musicians, Bobby Sullivan and Mark Sullivan. And um, we did a few good records, but this was in the mid-90s, and there were 
tens of thousands of good indie record labels, so there really wasn't a need for another indie record label, even though my band was very successful at the time, so I had like I had media connections and stuff that would help launch it, but it was and though I'm very proud of the records that we did and we did some great records, it wasn't that inspirational of an experience in part because coming back to this issue of there just wasn't really a need for it so it, and it wasn't like we were doing something brand new and I think as a publisher I think it's I find it to be a very as running a record label or publishing books is it is a creative profession so there's that same creative imperative that musicians writers and other artists have which is you don't want to be redundant you know you want to be creating a art that doesn't just get slotted into a space but that creates something new that wouldn't otherwise exist and so that's spooky you said that man we've used that phrase describing ourselves so many times it can just come up multiple times I, yeah and i think it's the bait i think it's a core creative imperative there we published a great we reissued a great collection of essays written by amiri baraka in the late 1960s at the time his name was leroy jones but it was about jazz music he was a jazz journalist and um, he lays it out really beautifully in that book. You know what the what the job of musicians is—not the job, but what the what the role is if you're someone with creative integrity. And I think that applies to businesses as as well, or creative businesses. Obviously, it's ignored by the big, you know, by the mainstream publishers. They're, they, that's not their <laughs> that's not their mo or the big record companies, but for little ones it is. It is what you're trying to do something new. Um, and, at least ideally. And, what's that? Well, at least ideally. Ideally. I mean, no. a lot of people do it because just to do it, and then yeah. it's a glut. Yeah. And, and a lot of the books that we publish aren't necessarily, you know, and the way that we publish isn't always, not everything we do is brand new, but I think if you look at our list as a whole, you will see that we are doing things in a unique way. But, um, we, one of my, the two partners when I started the company, Mark Sullivan, had a novel that he had tried unsuccessfully to get published. And um, that put us in the frame of mind of doing books. His novel, we did end up publishing several years later. It's not what we started with, but it was his novel, Jonas Sees Ghosts, that sort of gave us the inspiration to say, we're doing this record label, why don't we simultaneously try to do a book company? And, um, and as soon as we published our first book, for me, it was kind of quickly became apparent to me it was everything I had ever wanted out of the record company. There was a demand for publishers. There were 1997, 1996, there were 100,000 little record labels, and there was like 36 indie book publishing companies. So there was a real demand for it, and for the same reason, we were able to get our hands immediately on really phenomenal manuscripts that just weren't being published. So without any background in the business, we were able to publish top quality literature. Whereas in the music, even though I was in a very popular band, again, it's not like some, any, any musician who was at all good already had a record label. So it was just, it was just a real breath of fresh air. And a after publishing a couple of books, both my partners, Bobby Sullivan and Mark, Mark Sullivan, ended up leaving the company. They both had children around that time, and starting a small business is an experience of hemorrhaging money. I was making a good living at playing in Girls Against Boys, so I actually had money to sink into it. 
and they were in the position where any extra money they had, they needed to put food on the table for for their brand new children and whatnot. So they left the company pretty early on, and then I continued and then quickly stopped stopped doing music just because I wanted to really focus on books. It was so much more exciting to me. Mm-hmm. That's cool. How do you? I just think it's fascinating that I'm I'm a big noir fan and a big crime fiction fan. How do you curate the wide geographic scope of the noir series? I, I'm, a, I'm amazed when I see the list. I know. Yeah. It's one thing to have DC and Brooklyn and, you yeah. know, uh, even Phoenix, I guess. But, you know, you have Barcelona, you have St. Petersburg. How yeah. does that come about? How do you put that together? Um, for the noir series, there's now about 60 books in the series, and it's growing all the time. You know, we have so many great forthcoming books. We've done very few. We've done no books in the Middle East, and and we started focusing on that a couple years ago. So now, on our forthcoming list, we have Baghdad Noir, Tehran Noir, Beirut Noir, Jerusalem Noir, Tel Aviv Noir, and that's very exciting. The, The most important decision we make is who the editor of each volume is, because it's all about the curating, and we have to maintain a high level of quality across the series. Um, or the series can't work, it, and and that I think the success of the series is based on the fact that I think we've done a great job of picking great editors and giving them the guidance that that, that they need. It's not all on them. We set edit, editorial parameters for them to work within, and um, so you contact them first. You have your eye on someone you think might be good. You get a hold of them and ask them to compile something for you? It's a, it's a mix. Um, every single day I get pitches from all over the world. I would like to edit Bangkok Noir, or I'd mm-hmm. like to edit Beijing Noir. Um, so people are coming at us all the time, and you know, 19 out of 20 of them, we say, no, thank you. We appreciate your interest, but no, thank you. Because of how they've presented themselves, we have a very specific vision for the series, um, some of which is not apparent in the books themselves. It's sort of <laughs> back, like like to give you one example. Um, you know, ethnic diversity is a major, major integral element of Akashic Books as a company, um, particularly African American writers and Caribbean writers. The African diaspora, broadly speaking, is for me like a, co- a cornerstone, foundational for Akashic Books. Um, on the noir series, so if you pick up a, a book, you know, a noir series book, almost every single one of them has the diversity of the place reflected in it. So, for example, when I got a proposal for Detroit Noir from someone, and I said, well, who do you see? Who's your, who's your dream list of the contributors would be? When the person for Detroit Noir sends me a list of 15 names and 14 of them are white, I say, no, thank you. Because I know immediately that this is not the right editor for the book. Detroit is, you know, 60, 70% African American. That to me, and, and I'm not judging them. I'm just, it's, if, if, that, if, 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 that's, if that's their vision of what Detroit Noir would look like, that's, that's not going to work for Akashic. And I'm not saying that the book has to be 70% African-American contributors, but it can't be one out of 15. It's just not... The, the books have to, on a certain level, on various levels, reflect the cities themselves. 
Now, there's no element, you will never see the words ethnic diversity written on the packaging of the Noir series or in our promotional materials. But this is, some, this is, a, this is a back office <laughs> matter, and it's hugely important to me. Um, you know, there are, there are some books in the series that don't reach the level of diversity that I think that the book from that city needs. Um, but you can ask any of the editors, and they will tell you that I fight tooth and nail for this aspect of, of the books. So um, that's, that's, that's an aspect. So, so there's editorial parameters that we have, but then we, we just have to pick the right person. I remember when we published Los Angeles Noir, it was something like the 16th book in the series, and all the L.A. media complained that, you know, L.A. is like, you know, is a cornerstone of American noir. And so the L.A. Times, the L.A. Weekly, all the prominent L.A. media, they gave the book glowing reviews, and it was a Los Angeles Times bestseller, and we've sold through six printings, and it's been a huge success. But the reviews all gently said, why is this the 16th book in the series? You know, why did Twin Cities Noir come before Los Angeles Noir? And the reason is because we needed, because we curate these things. I could have made Los Angeles Noir easily the second book in the series if I didn't take care to make it the best possible book it could be. You know, so... It would be easy to put out an L.A. Noir book and not fill a niche, not not fill a need, because L.A. is the capital of Noir. So, you know, it's a little bit, in some ways, more difficult to put together a relevant book pursuant to the parameters you want to do in L.A., whereas in even in D.C., it's, a, it's more undiscovered country. Yeah, exactly. It's so discovered. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can understand that. So have you... Do you have something? Quick question. I mean, we're, we're here... Uh, in, the, in the office of, of Akashic, uh, looking at the shelves around us, is this your stock, or do you have a warehouse somewhere? We have a distributor or? in Minnesota. Oh well, we have a, there's a warehouse in Tennessee with tens of thousands okay. of Akashic yeah, that, that's, books. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, this is our this is our local, this is our office stock, but, but there's a massive warehouse. You know, that warehouses many different publishers. Uh, so, so what what are these books for then? If an order comes in for St. Petersburg Noir, does it come here? You grab it off the shelf, put it yeah. in a box, and no. Uh, I mean, the the bookstores, the book trade gets the books through our distributor. These are for promotional use. They're for direct orders to our website. We sell uh-huh. books directly. Um, um, that's ba- I mean, it's really promotional use is the main is the main purpose of. Of what of what you see here, gotcha. Um, but there's actually many many different types of purposes. Sometimes we'll get a call from a you know we'll get a call from a bookstore that says I have your author here tomorrow and your distributor never sent us the books and so we say oh no we'll FedEx you <laughs> copies from that stack. We we don't like it when that happens, um, and that's not a by the way a, a knock on our distributor. We have the best distributor in the business and they're they're an indie distributor and, and we love them. Plug them if you like. Consortium Book Sales and Distribution. They're based in St. Paul, um, Minnesota, and they're we've been with them for over a decade, and they're really um, they've helped us tremendously to to grow, and they've taught us a lot, and we've we've grown together, and um, we also um, I'm happy to say we 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 published the uh, they put they 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 distribute like about a hundred different independent presses. Um, lots of really, really great publishers, but I'm proud to say that we published the um, 
the top selling book they've ever distributed. So which what was Go the Go the Fuck to Sleep. Oh. Yeah, I which was our, our one our one mega hit. Nice. Yeah, that thing that was like a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, there's a follow-up too, right? Well, there's a children's version of the book called "Seriously, Just Go to Sleep." "Go the Fuck to Sleep" is for adults, <laughs> even though it's packaged like a kid's book. And "Seriously, Just Go to Sleep" is for children. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, and we have we've licensed the book into translation into 30 different languages. We're doing something very fun right now, which is that we are um, doing a Jamaican patois Man. translation of the book. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, we have overstayed our time, so we won't keep you any longer, um, unless you guys had something to follow up with. No, no, I don't want to. I, I could lead us to another report. Oh, I could lead us to another report. I mean, I, I, I don't know how long you want it to be, but I'm, I'm happy to speak for a little bit longer. Okay, sure. Do you want to talk about the, uh, let's just get a little deeper into the noir stuff. Like well, actually, I wasn't going to do that only because I mean, my my main question was about the cur the curating. I was actually oh, yeah. thinking this is maybe a philosophical question. The the started the discussion with the mainstream press and sort of ignoring uh, large portions. Is it just liberal elitism, or is it just having made it and being established? I mean, isn't you know, in other words, they were idealistic and. They, it, they may have been where you are at one point. How do you get? How do you stop from becoming that? And would, you know, in other words, do you think that was part of it, or was it simply liberal elitism? Well, I don't think it's simply liberal elitism. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of a lot of factors. Um, that's one of my favorite. I mean, even though you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal. I'd, maybe I'd call myself more a leftist than a liberal, but. Um, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what the, what the problem, I, I mean, I, I think that the, that the, the, one of the main problems with the industry was just like with the music business is that, is that kind of like what you're saying, I mean, publishing history is filled with these sort of boutique companies and then somewhere along the way corporations started swallowing them up and merging and merging. And that's what happened, you know, that's what happened in the music business. And it got so bottom line driven um, that, uh, that art got kind of shucked aside, you know, or the balance between art and commerce was thrown off. I feel like any kind of culture company, you, you have to find your own balance between art and, com and commerce. And I feel like I, I just want, I don't know what I, my perfect balance is, but I just want art to have a higher priority than commerce, even if it's fifty-one forty-nine. <laughs> you know, I, I want art to be the, 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 you know, literature, art, ideas, politics, to have the edge over over commerce. And I think that that's clearly reflected in the books that we're choosing. It's clearly reflected in our deep commitment to Caribbean literature, which is perhaps my favorite part of our list. We publish lots of Jamaican authors. Haitian authors, Trinidadian authors. We're see not the, see the Kingston Noir, Kingston, right there. Kingston Noir. We've done Haiti Noir. We've done Trinidad Noir, but also many, you know, dozens of in, books by individual Caribbean authors. This is not a commercial thing. There's no when when I go down to festivals in Trinidad and Jamaica, and I'm meeting with authors. 
I'm not bumping elbows with any other book publishers other than this one guy in England named Jeremy Pointing, who runs a fantastic publishing company called People Tree Press. And People Tree Press and Akashic Books right now are the only two companies outside of the Caribbean that I know of that have a major Caribbean focus. There's a, and, and so there's no, there's no editors at any of the big houses that are, well, I can't say that completely. There, 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 there's a few editors that, are, that, that have a commitment, not as much of a focus, but they do have a commitment. There's a wonderful woman named Malaika Adero who works at Simon & Schuster. She works at the Atria imprint of Simon & Schuster. And she's, she does great work, and she publishes some great Caribbean authors. And there's other examples, but for us, it's a, it's a core element of our mission, and it has nothing to do with commerce.
if we were focused on making money, we wouldn't be spending so much time in the Caribbean because that's not, and, and I believe we can make money from Caribbean authors and we can be profitable, but that's not, that's clearly not what is, what is driving us. The mainstream companies, the corporate companies, just like in the big, big business, it's the balance between the art and the commerce is out of whack. It's just out of whack. It's the, the, the commerce has so much of a higher priority than the artistic the, you know, theory, idea side of things. And, and, and they're failing as a result because, because books are not widgets. They really aren't. Books, literature, books are sold one at a time. They are, they, they are sold one at a time. Now, we were lucky to have that book, Go the Fuck to Sleep, which acts as if it's a widget because <laughs> it just goes flying off the shelves. And that book is not sold one at a time. You know, that's like a book, you know, by like, you know, Barack Obama. You, know, you have a number one New York Times bestseller. Then books start to look like widgets. But for every New York Times bestseller, there are, you know, 700,000 other books. So I don't think that all the books should be treated like that 3% of books that are big sellers. I think books should be treated like the vast majority of books are, books that sell up to several thousand copies, anywhere from 800 to 15,000 copies. That range is where the vast, vast, vast majority of books fall. And I think that that's how we should treat books according to that range. On the other hand, Time Warner, you know, Time Warner, Simon & Schuster, Random House, they can't run big successful corporations with that kind of attitude. And I actually have, as a business person, I have a little bit of respect for the fact that they have a different economy of scale. So they have to have different priorities. Also, authors like to be paid big advances. So if you're an author and you want to get a $100,000 advance for your book, you have to accept the fact that there's going to be a widgetification <laughs> of the process and, and your book is very likely going to be seen as a failure you know just like for bands like my band when we signed to a major label we understood that there was a high probability of the fact we're going to take all this money I personally am going to use that money to start Akashic Books with be very you know try to use that money constructively and for my own life and my family and whatnot. but we didn't have, when my band signed to a major label, we didn't have too many illusions about the fact that even though Geffen Records was telling us we were going to be the next big thing, we were sort of like, okay, I'm going to go deposit that money now and we're going to keep doing what we do and we're going to hope that your marketing muscle is going to bring us to a higher level. But in fact, it didn't. You know, Our most successful period was with Touch and Go Records, an independent record label, and Geffen Records poured tons of money. They gave us a lot of money, and they spent a lot of money promoting us, but it just didn't. It just didn't work out. And while we were disappointed, we weren't surprised. Right. You know, and 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 I would. I don't regret for a second what we did because we wouldn't be sitting here today having this conversation were it not for Geffen Records. I'm guessing it's a very attitude. You just What's said it? that we were disappointed, but we weren't surprised. I would bet you that most most bands, almost no matter what age, and they get on a major, and that's their big chance. They're both disappointed and stunned. Yes, and, and stunned. They have no money left. And and and, and writers too, yes. because very few people in the mainstream business, music or books, tell musicians and writers what's really going on. Music is different now, so I, I, I'm talking about the old music business. But writers, even the writers' agents, they don't tell the writer. You know, most books sell between 800 and. 15,000 copies and most likely your book is going to sell three or 4,000 copies. 
let's hope it sells tens of thousands, let's hope it sells millions. But no one tells this to the writers, or very few people do. This is changing slowly as the independent press movement grows, and we're, you know, Akashic and other indie presses, we're, you know, we're having a great run, and we're doing great work, and we're being given a lot of respect for what we do. And independent presses tend to be much more straightforward and reality-based with our authors. I never tell an author, oh, sign with us, well, you'll, you'll be a big hit. I'm all about realistic expectations, because I want our authors to be happy with their 4,000 sales. I don't want them to be disappointed. Now, of course, if we paid an author a $50,000 advance, then we could all be disappointed together. <laughs> but then that's one, of the, that's one of the privileges of not having a lot of money and having small advances is that our, our authors, they recoup quickly and they make good royalties. And, well, and, then, we're, and then we're all... And the, yeah, exactly. Discord. Discord, touch and go. Those were the, you know, really... If, 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 some, you know, if I had to compare Akashic to another company, it wouldn't be another book publisher. It would be Discord Records. Yeah, sure. um, though... There's a lot that we do that's very different than Discord, and there's a lot, you know, that we do. Yeah, that's we do a lot of stuff Discord would never do. So it's not like I'm trying to emulate Discord, but Discord has always been, for me personally, the core inspiration. And I'm so lucky to the fact that Ian Mackay and Jeff Nelson, who run Discord, are two of our biggest supporters. <laughs> so that's that's totally um, that's a huge affirmation. Sure. You talked about the art versus commerce thing, and I, I've had really tiny microscopic businesses of, my, businesses of my own. In fact, I have one now, and I, I have had some experience with that. It, it's these are not artistically driven, and you know the same sort of thing where you're uh, curating a collection of things. But um, it's so easy when you when there's that financial carrot dangling to do something that may slightly sort of compromise <laughs> how you feel about yourself. Um, and I, I imagine that probably is amplified a great deal when you have employees who you're, you know, kind of feel responsible for, et cetera. And I don't mean something like, yeah, let's go ask Steven Seagal to write a book for us, you know, but I mean like something or something stupid like that. Awesome. That would be awesome. <laughs> I would do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know what I mean? Like something small, you're like, I feel icky about this, yeah, well, but I'm going to do it anyway because yeah. I feel like, wow, we could make mm, X number of dollars. I think that my staff would probably all agree I'm the quickest to compromise. And, may, and maybe it's because, maybe it's because, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about it, the fact that it's maybe it's because ultimately at the end, it's, you know, I'm the one most financially responsible and stuff. You're welcome. But, <laughs> but I'm, but, um, I'm for, given given the fact that I think that almost none of our books reflect any compromise. It's certainly, and I will defend "Go the Fuck to Sleep," you know, to my death. I'm so proud of that book. And there's no compromise, and I don't think you can see compromise in har hardly anything here. I'm actually totally comfortable making compromises and I'm totally willing to do it and my staff routinely shoots down harebrained ideas that I have that involve compromise. I think everyone on staff is is willing to we make our our, our acquisition process is a more or less consensus process. So everybody weighs in. It doesn't mean that everybody has to love every book, but um, ideally everyone is okay with us moving forward with the book. Um, 
I will sometimes bulldoze ideas that I'm particularly fond of through, but but they, you know, it's a checks and balances system, and they, my staff does a good job of protecting me from myself. Um, uh, but I'm totally comfortable compromising. But to, and and to me, uh, you know, philosophically, it, it, and I'm not sure what this says about me. I'm not sure it, it's a positive reflection of my values. But I, I don't even necessarily see things as compromise. I mean, it's easy for me to say we need to be able to continue doing what we do. No one here gets paid very well. A nice goal is for us all to to be paid more and for our authors to be making more royalties. So I think that there's a very compelling reason to try to make more money. And, and, um, and in fact, the success that we had with that book, Go the Fuck to Sleep, which has sold more than a million copies worldwide, um, is uh, really gave us a, a taste of the fact it really is much better to work for a company that has at least a little bit of money in the bank. Um, you know, and... And uh, so, uh, at, since, ever since the success of the book, and because it was a number one, it was on the number one on the New York Times bestseller list for like three months, we were exposed to all these things we had never been exposed to. When you have a huge hit book, and um, we liked a lot of what we were exposed uh-huh. to, and so I would say we've become. I've argued, you know. My, my perspective is, and I think that my whole staff has kind of r- rallied behind it, is, okay, we publish 25 to 30 books a year. Let's take two to four of those slots and try to look at more, look for books that have more commercial potential. Rather than always judging it, like, how much do we love this book, let's seek out some projects that we think might have more commercial potential, which is a change for us. It's not been, it's not that we're ignoring money or ignoring commerce, not at all, you know, and we promote our books aggressively, but in terms of the acquisition process to try to start from a point of like, okay, let's find stuff that works within the rubric of what we do and, and seek them out. And I'll, I'll show you right now an example. Um, the, this is a book. These are two books you would have never imagined seeing on the Akashic Books list. They're cat cartoon books. The first one is called Simon's Cat and Kitten Chaos, and the second one is called Simon's Cat versus the World. And it's based around these um, short films based around this cat called Simon's Cat. It's a massive YouTube phenomenon that hundreds of millions of views of these delightful, adorable, hilarious two-minute films about this mischievous cat. Um, It's hard to imagine Akashic five years ago publishing this book. And again, I mean, I, I, so someone might look at this and see some compromise, okay? We love, we love these books and we love working on them. To me, I don't feel that we've lost anything. I, you know, for every Simon's Cat book that we publish, I can show you seven Caribbean novels that I'm hugely proud of and just because we take a few of our 25 to 30 books a year we take two or three of them and take you know try something outside of the Akashic box with it cartoon cats cartoon cats you know we 
it, do, it doesn't, that has not reduced our commitment to the Caribbean. If anything, we are more committed to the Caribbean than we've ever been. So to me, the essence of what we do is 100% intact while we take, while we adventure, you know, while we experiment with some other, other types of things. Um, well, and in fact, these books, does. what's that? Better that does, the more, the more Caribbean stuff you can do. Exactly, and That's these right. books are doing well. This is a sort of calculated risk, and it's paying off. These books are very successful for us, and, um, and I'm, not embar- I'm, I'm not embarrassed by these. I'm proud of these. I'm proud that our logo is on the back of these books. I've always had eclectic interests and eclectic tastes, and it's funny, because coming from a punk rock background, and then starting a, what looks to be a devoutly independent press, and we are devoutly independent, I don't aspire to live on the fringes. I want these books to be New York Times bestsellers. I want everybody to be buying these books. I want to sell millions of books. So it's not... The books may... Some of our books may look fringe, but we're not trying to be fringe. It's just aesthetics. The Caribbean thing is not an attempt to be artsy and obscure. It's, we, love, we love these books, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, sure. Well, you get sort of post-irony after a, a time. I mean, there's a stage, in, I think, all you develop when you're... You know, the same background, you know, punk rock, and you evolve through tastes, and, you know, yeah, there's a point where you're like, this is kind of ironic to like this, and then eventually you're like, it's stupid, there's no use for that. Like, I actually like this thing, yeah. it's good. Um, you touched on something briefly there, too. It's funny, I mean, we talked to, we only know Ian a little bit, but um, our producer is um, Chad Clark. I don't know if you know Chad or not. I don't know. Um, but anyway, he knows Ian fairly well. He's in Beauty Bill and Smart Like Crazy, and, and they were on, oh yeah, they were on Discord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I, actually, I think I, I think I met him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you know, he's always talking about Ian and and um, how Ian is. You know, it's funny. He's this the the proto punk rock guy, and he's the proto punk rock businessman. But people don't think of him in that those terms as a businessman exactly. I mean, I think they just think Discord has this incredibly you know pure aesthetic and like good stuff just happens. But like he's a he's a good he's a good businessman and he's done a good job with that I mean he had a, he had a lot of products people were interested in but um, he's, I think he's probably very conscious of what you need to do to be successful in business which is antithetical to the notion of like we do what we want you know kind of yeah though I, I will say however that he is more he's more principled oh yeah he is more principled so like for example oh absolutely in, yeah. in terms of you know figuring out how do you run an independent publishing company okay we're going to take we're going to take this risk and adventure of publishing Simon's Cat versus the world, Discord Records wouldn't do the musical equivalent of, of this. I mean, Discord Records only, among other things, only publishes local artists. So, you know, I, Discord could have put out probably like Soundgarden Records and, you know, every, any, you know, in the early 1990s, Nirvana probably would have wanted to be on Discord Records, yeah, yeah. but they wouldn't do it because they have this regional yeah. thing, and they really stick to that. And so, we talk about the little compromises. I'm sure that along the way, Discord has made little comp- you know, little compromises. But I would say that I'm more willing to make compromises, generally speaking, than say 
than say Ian is. And I think that that's one of the major differences between what we do and what they do is, you know, I'm happy to make a licensing deal with HarperCollins for this or that, you know. And I do think, I, I think you make a very good point. Ian, Ian and Jeff Nelson run a business and it's been a successful business for more than two decades and you have to be a business person to do that. However, I do also think that they are more principled. Um, well, the notion of compromise, if, if you stand I mean, behind it, yeah. Simon's Cat's, Simon's Cat, you know, 100%. Uh, which I do. Which, which you do, right. That, so it's, that, it's not that, a compromise. What, yeah, then what exactly are you, are you compromising, really? Well, I'm not compromising, but I, I'm not compromising, but, um, but I, I, I guess the way to state it is that for Discord Records, the equivalent probably would be a, comp would be a compromise. Mm -hmm. Like, let's do... Let's you know, be, be, you know because there's a our decision to publish these books. There's a there's a the, you know the balance. You know, we we think these are great books, and we wouldn't publish them if we didn't think they were great books. But the decision to do so, commerce plays a bigger than average part in 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 the de in the decision to do it. We're not going to publish anything that we're embarrassed. You know, oh, to, sure. have, to have our logo. Oh, yeah, there's on. there's limits on both ends. There's um, no question. But I mean, but, I know for anybody, really. But in terms of the art commerce balance in the decision to do something like this, mm -hmm. is is a balance that, you know, that that so Discord the, Records would never be encountering. In the process, more than the product. Yeah, I guess. I guess so. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things we do promotionally that Discord would never. Discord well, like would, anything. They they don't do promote. It's like that's that's. They do. They promote, but they don't. Yeah, they 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 have more limited. They have limited. I, yeah, I remember, I remember one time in the band Soulside that I was in the Discord band. We went to Ian and we were like, "Can you? We want you to do this, this, and this, and this to help promote our record." And I remember Ian said, "I'm not going to be your label boy." And and <laughs> it was just such a funny moment, and I remember it so clearly. And. Because we were like, why not? But at the same time, you know, he commanded the authority and the respect, and we re we totally respected and, and understood what he what what he what he was saying. It was he's like, I'm not going to go doing these promotional efforts that to me feel hollow, right. you know, and um, are meaningless that don't hold innate meaning to to him as the person running the business. Right. And you know, there's many times where I would love to be able to say to an author, I'm not going to be your Label boy, <laughs> but I could never, yeah, exactly. I could never get away yeah. with saying that. Um, just I don't have the authority to say it, and and also it's not attitude. You know, we're very author centric in, it, how, it's, we, it's, in how we publish. It's funny though what he has a luxury though, and this is kind of what I'm talking about a little bit too. Like you guys obviously did well on Go the Fuck to Sleep, which is a, allowed you to do a lot of other things. I mean, he's had, you know. Minor Thread and Fugazi, obviously his own bands, but that allows you, if you have that kind of huge success, to it's easier to hold to those principles. Like I'm not promoting my records to the degree everybody else does, etc. Because you got plenty of capital. I, I, yes, but I would say that I believe that um, Ian Mackay would be holding firm to his principle, principles, even if. He didn't have some big sellers. Oh, I agree. And even I if agree. the company had to, he, I think he would stop the company before he would be like, mm -hmm. "I need a new business model." Right. You know, I oh, was yeah. just 
he was just something that, else. Because yeah. every, all these bands, as you know, in the 1990s, were like, we would never sign to a major label. And then the offer comes, and they sign. There was only one band that didn't, you know, or, or maybe two, or right. maybe Shellac, maybe Shellac didn't, you know, yeah, or and, and maybe there was three others, but no. all the other people that were like, we, you know, major labels suck, blah blah blah, yeah, well, all, all you, all you, all you, you know, it was all bullshit. It money, was, money, it money, was all yeah. bullshit, yeah. you know, and and you know, my, I will say, my band, we never said we were skeptical, but we never said we would never do that, you know. Because that was never that was never our attitude, and you know that's but right. but but um, we you know again we were we eyes wide open and skeptical, but I, all of these people that spout their principles, you know most of, most of them it's just it's not it's naive because you don't know what it's like to be offered a two hundred thousand dollar recording deal or something like that, and so everyone caved, and um, and I, I you know frankly I'm I'm glad that era is past. Because that sort of righteousness in punk rock, that sort of indie purism, I, I'm just so glad that that's past us. Yes. Because e- even though I'm a steadfast, independent guy myself, I'm not a purist. I'm not close to being a purist, you know, at all. Um, even though I will could yammer on for hours criticizing the corporations, um, I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm not. A, I'm, I'm not. It was dogma. What's that? It was dogma after a while. It was dogma, and it was empty dogma because there was only a few people, the four members of Fugazi, the three members of Shellac, and probably 17 other musicians that would actually hold true to this principle. Meanwhile, there was like a whole fanzine culture and all this, and I love the fanzines and I love the fanzine culture, but there was all these people just spouting this dogma, and it was was meaningless. It was hollow. Mm Mm-hmm. The fact is, I mean, I'll, I'll stop in a second, but like, at the height of my band's success, when we were one of the biggest indie bands in the country, we were on Touch and Go, selling tens of thousands of records, we still didn't have health insurance, you know? We didn't have health insurance until after we signed to Geffen Records, you know? And that, that was the first time we were able, we were making money on, when we were on Touch and Go, but that money needed to pay rent, you know, and food. We weren't making so much, there wasn't money left over to get health insurance with. So all these people that are like, you know, oh, you betrayed, Jesus Lizard betrayed the independent world by signing to a major label. Maybe those guys like to have health insurance. Is that, is that a crime? Right, right. <laughs> like, exactly. Well, that, that speaks to the whole, like, sort of, like, iconic, like, starving artist thing that if you're doing that, then you're more pure than everybody else. Yeah, and that's, that's, it's, it's kind of a And trope. it's meaningless, especially when most, when 95% of the starving artists will take the money that was offered to them yeah, anyway. And it's absolutely. one of the reasons why people are always like, oh, this author that you published moved to Simon & Schuster. That must make you really mad. And I'm like, no. You know how much they got paid? Yeah. They can get health insurance now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. I'm, all, I'm all for my authors getting paid. If, 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 if someone else is offering them a... What I don't want is an author to leave us for a five thousand dollar advance from a big, big publishing house. Then I'm being, being like, you know what? That's a really dumb move. You're going to make less money, and you're going to get ignored. But if someone's being offered a big fat advance, and they, um, at, you know, and they need that money to live a middle class existence and maybe get some health insurance, I'm wholeheartedly supportive. If you played a role in helping them do that, absolutely, all the better. Yeah, and I exactly, and I and I will, and I've done. I have authors that are like, oh, for my next book, I'm thinking of maybe trying to, you know, 
talk to one of the bigger companies and say, okay, here's five good agents that I think will treat you well. Go talk to them. They'll hook you up. You know, I, I do it because, because I actually, I, I mean, this is getting soapboxy of me, but because I care about the authors. If I, if I said to them, like some independent publishers do, don't leave us, that's a betrayal, then you, that's, that's not caring about the author. Right. That's caring about yourself. <laughs> right. That's a good <laughs> you, point. You pretend to be caring about the author in independent culture, but if you really cared, you would let the author do something so that they could actually earn a living. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not to say our authors don't earn a living, but very few of our authors could quit their day job. Yeah. Right. right. Speaking of, uh, you brought a touch and go, and this is a digression bit, but what did, in speaking of business and balancing art and commerce, like, what is the backstory with Touch and Go? What happened with that, having to shut down? Oh, I don't really know. Uh, I mean, they didn't shut down. They well, still they do exist. distribution. Yeah. Or they're not putting out new yeah. stuff. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know. Um, I mean, they keep I'm, your stuff in print? They yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Definitely. Definitely. We're doing, you know, we, get, we just got, I have a Touch and Go royalty check sitting on my desk. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, I won't ask her how much. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Enough, enough that I puts a smile on my, me and my bandmates' faces. That's awesome. Um, uh, so I don't. I, I, I've never. I, I've never sat down with Corey. You know, runs touch and go yeah. to, to to hear exactly exactly what. I'm happened. just curious because that was a. That was obviously a huge label and. and yeah. It was I, a, to yeah. me, it came it came out. Of, I was really surprised when they decided. Yeah, yeah. It was surprising. Maybe it was more of a. Just a decision, not so much like we're running out of money or going bankrupt. It's more just like I don't feel like doing this anymore. Perhaps that happens. Perhaps Absolutely. I don't know. Could yeah. Um, yeah, I think. Wrap it up. Yeah, I appreciate you spending yeah. the extra time with us. Yeah, very much. So. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for doing this. Absolutely. I appreciate yeah. your interest in. Yeah, it's awesome. Cool. All right. Yeah. Thanks, John. So there you go, Johnny Temple at Akashic Books in Brooklyn, and. It was a, once we got him rolling, he just had lots to say. So interesting guy and appreciate him taking the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Labor uh, put out by the Caribbean, a band from Washington, D.C., and we will see you next time. Thanks.